Bike, best game ever. Can we talk about Excite Bike? Let's talk about Excite Bike. First of all, you know I ride motorcycles. Second of all, look at these guys. How can we even tell their guys and motorcycles? Like, think about the powers of the mind. Because <laughs> I picked this picture. I picked this picture because number one, like like you, I loved Excite Bike. Me too, but, man. But I love that you could build your own course. I loved that you could, you know, and, and super look, high graphic and detail. Look at the little dude filming them. There's a camera guy back there. That's a great detail. Somebody was like, let's put a camera person back there. <laughs> Look at, no. <laughs> the best part about these shadows is that they don't make sense. Like for one guy, the shadow's behind him. For another, the shadow's under him. Some of, look the guys, like him. some of the guys don't have shadows. Like it's cute. But I, I will say, man, this was one of the first like fast games. And it wasn't fast, but it was for then. I had so much fun playing this game. I have a tremendous love for motorcycles, and this was obviously not super realistic, but it was so fun. This game is in the upper echelon for me. For you sure, know, man. Right, right in our, our wheelhouse of when we were growing up. The the other one that reminds me of it is, is the ice hockey game where you could pick. I loved that game. You could pick different size humans to be on. The I planet. loved that game. Oh my God. My favorite sports game of all time is Tech Mobile. Like that is the one. There's I don't care, like Madden and all that shit. That's cute. Tech Mobile, especially Tech Mobile Super Bowl, which is part two, is in my opinion the best sports video game ever. But that I'm hockey have game. To think about which guest gets Tech Mobile because that's gonna be a very important one. That's critical. I think there's two for me, there's two video games and then there's everything else. There's Tech Mobile, like I mean Tech Mobile Super Bowl. Um, Bo Jackson on Tecmo Super Bowl was a revelation. Like he was yeah. a miracle. Yeah. And then um, uh, Super Mario Brothers Three. Like there's so to me that is the greatest video game ever created. I it hit right when I was at my peak video game play age. But also, like I just remember the myth of Mario Three throughout my school and neighborhood. Like it just sort of like that yellow box just changed everything. Uh, for kids like it was like where did everybody go nobody's outside and like people were just gathered around homes that had the game it was the first time i remember like lines and like just crazy hype around a video game like it was insanity and it delivered man what a video game i remember that one obviously i remember the original mario brothers too of but, course same, but, same. Um, the other one that stood out to me is zelda because oh yeah, that's, that's the, the, the the cartridge was gold. Gold, I mean, man. There gold. was something serious going on there, and and I remember and this happened to a lot of people, but I was one of them. I built up my character for months and months and months and months, and you know had every sword and every shield and, and everything. Got erased. Gone. That's never, rough, man. Never played it again. That's rough, man. <laughs> uh, I love I love the Legend of Zelda too. Um, fast forwarding to the Ocarina of Time, which is not an 80s game. It's a, I think, 90s. Yeah, late 90s. That, I love Mario 3. The Ocarina of Time Zelda is probably the most fun video game I've ever played. Like, just universe building, 
Like it, it was incredible. Like the, it was Nintendo 64, so the graphics were a lot better than the original Nintendo. But what a video game, man! I love I, to sell. This I really series. like. I really like using video games uh, as a as a theme for this set of of yeah. discussions that we're gonna have because, you know, they're all different. They represent all of our guests. It's easy to find um, ways in which they represent people's careers, like because games. It, it is a game. Like we talk about the hustle or the game or whatever, like all of, all of the work we're doing, there's like elements of a game. And so I find it interesting to, to go this direction. And our discussion with Greg is a good one. Who's the guest today. Cause um, picking excite bike sort of, sort of obviously we like the game, but also, you know, it, it's his, his career has been just risk after risk after risk after yeah. risk from a from a career perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Eager, every step of his career is one of these little hills in the back of the excite bike here. Like, um, and then and then he goes out with his his buddy Kieran Lingham and starts uh, a comp like a, a a tech GC, which is this community for for tech GCs, and now a deputy GC. They have a deputy GC community too, and it's. It will get into it with him, but what's awesome about it is how real it is and how practical the discussions are. I went to their event in New York City like three years ago, and they were, uh, I was hosting the privacy portion of that event. And every conversation, out, even outside of the privacy uh, area, is so like the conversations that just like the conversations that we have, you know, when we have our roundtables, like, what do, how are you actually dealing with this issue <clears throat> in your company you know instead of like well abstractions and theoretically and blah 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 yeah and so they've they've you said it best <clears throat> in the conversation way way to go creating something that's that creating a business out of something that's fun and interesting that's fun man yeah like that's that's what i admire most about what greg is doing is that like he put a twist on this legal thing that we do just made it interesting and fun community building and like a lot of the times a lot you know there's networking but that's some, somewhat self-serving like this is just really it's a community or like a community builder like i love that i think that's dope man random question here what is the secret code you have this big v on the bottom of your screen i don't know it just is this a signal are you queuing on like what is happening uh, like what am i missing here or is this v for vendetta like what is what's the vibe man well i'm definitely not queuing on <laughs> Couldn't couldn't hate QAnon more. Is this a drop? Is that what they call them? Drops? I think this is a drop, bro. <laughs> <laughs> sending all these signals, man. This sending is a drop. This is a drop, but the but the message is that I like video games and pizza. Okay, okay, okay. V for video game. I like it. I like it. Video okay. game. I thought it was V for Vendetta, man. I thought you were doing like some secret government things. I just wanted to let the feds know I have nothing to do with it. I think you know me pretty well that I have very few interesting secrets like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, not for me. Cool, man. Well, let's get it off. Here's here's the convo with Greg. All right. Here we are. We're here. We're here. Hey. EPBC with Greg Rayton from Tech GC. Uh, and Keanu's behind you, Pedro. Yeah, he is. He's got a bat in his mouth. It's fake, but he's out there having a good time. So you you were food poisoned yesterday, dude. I'm still a little food poisoned. Um, yeah. But uh, I'm doing okay. I was in Florida over the weekend for an IndyCar race, and um, I went to like a divey place for dinner, and I knew I shouldn't have had that Caesar salad. 
but yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the Caesar salad. But I had some weird like shrimp dish, and I've been paying the cost. You had shrimp at a car race. <laughs> Let, let's let's move on, man. <laughs> All right. Hey. Listen, it was like a shrimpy bowl thing. Like it wasn't some kind of like, you know, white tablecloth type thing. But you're, yeah, I mean, I love seafood, but sometimes, man, it bites back. It does. It does. <laughs> All right. So let's dig in just for a minute here. So, Greg, I want to go back quickly. Pedro and I are really, really good friends and almost to the level of hero worship with Julia Shulman. So we, we, we know you worked <laughs> together with her at Latham. And when I, asked her about you a long time ago she was like he was the best associate i ever worked with and and Whoa. so high praise right so what, what was it like praise. doing what was it like doing deals in the early days and um with julia uh, I'll, I'll comment a little bit more on on julia but what was that like in the early days for you yeah julia is fantastic it's funny so i i started at latham you know at the very beginning of the 08 crisis so I graduated law school, started in like September. You know, we had, everyone was kind of like watching the world crumble. We had no work to do. And I got really lucky getting into the, like the M&A sort of cycle there. Latham's like unassigned work, right? So you're not in a department. So you're kind of just scrambling for a little bit. And Julia was one of the first people I worked with. And I mean, she was fantastic. She was one of those people I feel like, you know, she's, I would, I would say there's two associates that I remember that like really, well, two or three associates like really taught me the ropes of just like how to do, you know, how to do diligence, how to be a junior associate. And I think in those days, it was so much more important because like, we're all just worried about, you know, when the next shoe is going to drop and there's going to be layoffs. And sure enough, there were. And I was lucky to make it through that. Julia was lucky to make it through that. Um, she's a, yeah, she is, she is a bit of a legend. I think she's it's a force, I'm, man. Like, I, uh, first time I met her, first or second time I met her, you know, I, I don't, I don't have a crystal ball or anything, but like I met her and I was like, she's definitely going to be a general counsel for sure. Like without a doubt. And lo and behold, not only is she one, she's kicking ass at it. So, um, yeah. Where did you first meet her then? I met her at a, so I met her at a privacy conference. Pedro and I were speaking together on a panel and she came, she was at AppNexus and she came up to us and introduced herself and, and we started talking. And of course, like in my jackass way, I was like, when are you going public? <laughs> she was like horrified and she was like, you know, we're busy, you know, <laughs> so like, in her way. But then, you know, obviously we became friends and she's one of the, Pedro and I both like bounce stuff off her all the time. Um, and we, we together, like she's, we're, we're on calls just, <clears throat> just to make sure that we're not crazy. You know, the positions we're taking, such an important thing to have. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Yeah, can we talk had, about? I mean, quite a career, yeah. Can we, can we talk about how, like, Julia knows more than anyone? I feel like we always talk about that. <laughs> it's true, she really does. Yeah, she, like, she knows her stuff, man. Like, it's, she she's does. nice, she's smart, she's a force, all that stuff, but like, but, like she just knows. I don't know how she finds the time. Like, I remember there was like a period there, maybe like 2018, 2017, where she, I, I, I never knew where in the world she was. She was like all over Europe, just doing like the front lines, like ad tech, privacy stuff, relationship with every DPA, relationship with every like, uh, uh, like sort of like big mind in the EU about GDPR when that was rolling out. Just like 
ahead of it in a way that is ad tech is super complicated and i used to think i was pretty good after a couple years at whiteboarding it for new people new you know new people on our team or like people that maybe weren't on the front lines of the tech side of the business if they joined like kind of julia's was better at that than any lawyer i've ever seen from a tech perspective and 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 to your point like that's that's one just one of the things that makes her good yeah she's also i mean she's super detail oriented too it's one of the things i remember about her just like when i was a you know baby junior associate at latham like she was like you know you're writing these diligence memos and stuff like julia was like so good at just like understanding all the details but being able to like step back and you know actually like take a look at like the big picture here like what do we care about um and i think that's you know that's kind of rare sometimes like you see people at different ends of that spectrum but like someone that can do both is is hard so you went from greg from working working with her on deals like that you were at gunderson also but then like then you went into two different investment firms venture capital firms how like how did that change for you having to to shift mindset from law firm to investment, you know, side of things. And then I'm also really curious about how, like how you interacted with founders and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting, right? Like I, for me, like Latham was, was interesting, but I was always looking to get to the startup world. And so I was in like New York for a bit and then lateral to like, or moved out to the Bay area and stayed with Latham, but then, you know, they don't do, I'd say a ton of startup work. So I really moved, wanted to move to Gunderson. And then I was like a corporate lawyer. So I was working with, you know, everyone at Gunderson or these firms have like some practice area across the spectrum of like representing companies and representing funds. So I was like mostly on the company side, but had a few fund clients. And one of them was 500 startups, which is, you know, a very interesting fund client for, for a number of reasons. They do something like 300 plus deals a, a year at that point. They're probably like double or triple that now. Um, and when they were looking for a GC, you know, I talked to them and ended up taking that role. And I like distinctly remember I, I had not done any fund formation work. Like I knew nothing about venture funds. So I went into the office of, of one of the partners in the fund practice. And I was like, dude, just like walk me through, like, how is a fund set up? Like I've heard about this two and 20, like, what does that really mean? Like, honestly, I didn't understand that stuff all that well. Um, and had to like really get up to speed on that. Cause you know, obviously when you're on the fund side, like a big part of it is understanding the fund mechanics and how all that stuff works. So that was a huge shift for me. And I think that was probably, you know, like any council moving from a law firm to in-house, there's like that big learning curve and just understanding how to, you know, how to give advice more internally, how to be more business focused, take, you know, take risk, not, not sort of focus on CYA constantly. Um, plus the learning curve of just like a whole area of law. So it was a, I mean, it was definitely a shift, but you know, I'd say for me too, it was also like, I was the first general counsel there. So like I did have, you know, someone who had left Gunderson before me and went to a fund, a very notable fund, um, and was stepping into sort of a, an empty role at a brand name fund that had never had a GC, um, was kind of punching above his weight belt. And I remember him telling me once, like, hey, like there was, I had this mentality of like, anything I do is going to be better than what they were doing before. And I think that gave, you know, I kept thinking about that too. Like there was no one here before me. So like, if anything, I'm improving it. I might not be doing a great job. Um, I might be missing a lot of stuff, but at least like the baseline is, you know, is, is pretty low here. I love the, I love the, like, like the, the safety net of low expectations. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like this is a piece of shit. I'm coming over here. I'm just going to cover it. It's blankets. They're not good blankets. But it, I get what you're saying though. Like, I mean, just your presence is an improvement and, uh, and uh, just having the 
like legal eyes on a business, I think matters, even if it's novice. I, or, yeah, even if you're new, even if you don't have experience. Yeah. Like, I want to interview, that. Pedro, I, I once interviewed for a job as uh, a, a GC's first or second hire. And he was like, he was like super busy. You could tell he was like crazed, like doing a million things. And, and he, he was hiring a contracts lawyer, you know, just to, to do all the, and, I, and he was like, at one point in the interview, he just goes, honestly, I don't even need them done that well. I just need them done. <laughs> You're like, I'm your guy. I'm your yeah, guy. well, so he, you know, he, he didn't hire me, but, but I mean, uh, <laughs> I could have, I could have been that guy, but I don't think it was yeah. the, the, a great job anyway. Well, when, not, I was at, when, I, when I was at Oracle, <laughs> we, we, Oracle was very inquisitive, same for Salesforce. Um, like super acquisitive companies and um, we would acquire all these text uh, these ad tech startups especially at um, at Oracle and I loved like those like diligence meetings with the general counsels who were just like guys or gals running around with their head cut off like they were like look man I really don't have command of everything that's happening I'm like it's just me and like one other person who's not a lawyer She's just helping out. She's in marketing, you know, like whatever. And um, and we're just doing the best we can. Our, you know, sales has full like red line rights on contracts. Like, you know, just and it's not that they're deliberately doing a bad job. Like it, it's just that like you literally can only do the best you can because there's they're just you just don't have the resources to cover all the all the bases. Just don't so have that. So Greg, like from 500 startups and first mark, like I'm sure you ex you met those people, you experienced those people, like you probably felt for them a little bit, you know, having been, having done what you've done before. What was the outlook of the VC firm on kind of the, the GC and their, their role, either like in a company, a company you had invested in or, or were advising or, you know, taking to exit? Um, in our portfolio companies, uh, let's, hmm. So 500 startups and first mark are two very, very different places, both like in how they, view lawyers internally and how they view you know their portfolio companies and their roles there and, and externally so i'd say i don't know i mean you know um fi 500 like was run by dave mcclure at the time he's you know an interesting guy he's a bit of a polarizing figure sorry i'm <laughs> you can hear the sound. Coming to you, welcome to new york welcome to new york um uh but like dave dave was like very openly like kind of like wanting to push the rules and push the boundaries and like he's the type of guy that like would go out there and say really provocative things both because he believed them but also kind of to just like you know be that be that um guy that stirs the pot and and he got that reputation so that was his approach i'd say internally to law too like i think he you know we had a good relationship i think he respected me but like we certainly had a lot of um differences on you know where risk tolerance was and what we were trying to do Whereas like first mark was the opposite. Like they were really like, they're not looking to push the boundaries on law. Like they're looking to like, you know, make good returns and have good companies and like not innovate on the side of like how they fundraise or, you know, how they sort of operate their own funds. Um, and I think that was also reflected in the companies, right? So like first mark, we took board seats. All of the partners were really savvy. Like I was amazed coming from a platform like 500 where they kind of took bets on early investors that didn't really know much about running a company or corporate governance or just, you know, best practices. I was going to ask you uh, that. Like, I was going to ask you that. Do you think that VCs provide value to startups? 
that's a that's a that's a loaded question. I mean, um, I'm, like, I'm, I'm saying it. I'm, I'm saying I'm saying it to be provocative, right? Like, plenty do, plenty do, but it's an interesting question, you know. Uh, yeah, listen, I I think plenty. I think a lot do, and I think a lot don't, right? And I think um, in 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 a whole bunch of ways, because I think it's it's like if you have a VC, like people always talk about, there's like two types of VCs, like those that have like never been operators and you know are just still like finance guys and like investment bankers or whatever went got their mbas and have never really operated any company and those that have been like deep in the trenches and built a lot of companies and and, and now moved over to the investment side i mean i certainly think the people who are operators like they can come in there and have a really unique and interesting lens but what i've been impressed with is like a couple people at first mark one in particular was had not been an operator before and i he's one of like the best smartest and best investors I've seen like it's it, in a lot of ways, like their, their lens of sitting at the top of this ecosystem and, and pattern matching and, you know, being on whatever it is, 10, 15, 20 boards, going through these life cycles of companies, seeing all the, you know, different ways these strategic transactions can play out, these different strategies can play out all that stuff. Like, yeah, that can be super valuable, but not everyone's, you know, not everyone's able to, to really like take that and synthesize it into good advice or like they make too much money. They don't really care. You know, there, there's true. Like VCs make a ton of money. And I think there is a level of engagement you get from some that you don't get from others. I think I was just going to say like on the VC side of things, like obviously the in injection of investment of cash is important for a business that's growing. Clearly, that's a benefit all by itself. Um, but like, having been on the like, and Andy, you're much more of an expert on this than I am, obviously. But like, I, once upon a time, I was on the like VC capital managed side of the house um, as a secondee. And I remember watching when, when the VCs came in, lots of resources. We were able to hire a bunch of people. The board was re reorganized and people were plugged in uh, in different places. But the goal wasn't to necessarily like, wasn't like steady long-term growth. It was very much like, what's our VC window? We need to hit a certain dollar amount in that time, make that happen. And like, that's the goal, I, you know, which didn't necessarily align with like the founder's goals, right? I think um, you're seeing that less now. I'd like to, I'd like is to- Is there less of that? I think so. I'd like to hear, hear Greg's point of view, but I'm seeing that less now. I'm seeing more, more, patience and more like build a good business and you know there's so much capital for companies that are are doing some of those right things early on that they get to they get to kind of pick their partners a little bit more and so you're in a situation where you know we just closed around around it's a it's a hot market and you know we were able to to get uh, general catalyst one of our existing investors that we were able to have them, you know, continue to lead because their philosophy is aligned with ours. And I think there's like, there's more of that now. There's less like focus on SaaS only and, and certain things, but I'd love, love Greg's take too. Yeah. I mean, I'll say two things. I agree with what you said, Andy. Um, I think that that is like an older mentality of like back in the dot-com days when like companies would go from founding to, you know, to, to public in four years. And like this whole idea of like a four-year vesting schedule on stock, all that stuff is like outdated. Like companies, you know, stay private for a decade or longer these days. So I think that's like built into the model and, and if you're investing at the seed or A stage, like 
investors know they're in this for a decade for most of these companies. And like, that's how they're thinking about it. But the second point I'll make is that, you know, if you like this idea of founders visions being unaligned with, with venture, like if you're taking venture money, like that is the path, like you're not going for like steady growth. You are going for sort of this rapid hyper growth and, you know, sort of big exits. So it's kind of like, you know, if that's, like if you want to take venture money, you have to understand the path that you're on, whether it takes four years, 10 years, whatever, like that's the path that venture investors are going for. And I think people now have gotten better about this, right? They, there's a lot written about it. Like if you're, you know, it's sort of like, if you don't want to like go fast, like don't get into a race car. Like, you know, you gotta, you gotta understand like who your partners are and what their goals are going to be. And there will be some shifts along the way to get there. But like, that's of course what a venture investor is looking for is like some 10 X type multiple. Do you think that contributes to the, that path contributes to the perception and reality that there's like lack of diversity in VC and, and sort of it's all white men and, and is that changing in your mind? Have you seen that change? Um, hmm. I think there is a lot of talk about diversity changing at VCs. I do think there is some effort I think it's hard. I mean, I think you see this, it's like the same with like law firms and just, you know, senior ranks at companies. Like, uh, I think that, um, yeah, I do think there is like effort and intent at a lot of funds to do this. And I think it's a slow process. So yeah, I mean, you still look at it today, like, I, I don't know the numbers, the vast majority of VCs are still white men. And I think, you know, that's, that's, that's like going to take a long time to change and it's going to take like real driven effort for it. But, but I think it's just like, it's getting the attention that it needs today where it's, you know, it's sort of like the first step, right? It's got to have a spotlight shined on it and got to be something that people genuinely care about for the change to happen. Yeah. It's going to take a while. Yeah, definitely. So take us, take us through, uh, you know, how, like, how you well so now you're an entrepreneur of sorts with tech gc so like take us through how you and kieran you know thought it through i and i imagine you didn't imagine that it was going to be your full-time job when you did it originally yeah um i love that i get entrepreneur of sorts by the way thank you well i, I, wanted, <laughs> to give you, I, I wanted to give you a new business card I, business card idea <laughs> um well, so yeah, quickly, quickly, no, quickly it's, Greg, it's... quickly, Greg, Pedro, uh, for one of our other guests, he said that, that this is a, a law firm lawyer. He said, Gary is a non, what did you say, Pedro? And the hell uh, knows what orga I told Gary. organically non-douchebag. So, oh yeah, Gary so that... is not a dirtbag. Yeah, he's not yeah. a dirtbag. <laughs> like, well, entrepreneur yeah, I, I gotta, hey, is listen, way man. better. I, I like, I, I don't, I avoid outside counsel when I can, man. It's just to be honest, like when I need them, I'll use them. And it's usually on a limited basis, but like, I, you know, outside counsel to me is like, I'm lucky because now I'm in a policy role. So I, I just don't, my relationship with outside legal is very different than it used to be. But like the prices have gotten so high and I just don't see the substantiation for it. That it just bothers me. Like $1,200 an hour just doesn't seem right to me. I don't care who you are. You're not smarter than my team, so why am I paying you twelve hundred dollars an hour? Like, why to pay for the ivory tower? I just don't understand. Like, why? It just seems I I, I just don't get the premise of these rates. I I, I don't know how they're justified. I, I, I don't. What's the justification? People are willing to pay. I, I, I mean, I don't know. I just don't get it. 
There's yeah, so I mean, I agree with you, but I, I, there is a lot of pressure on that, right? These days, like legal rates are exorbitant and there is a lot of pressure to have alternate billing site systems of flat fees or whatever. I, I keep is. hearing that myth, but where I is keep hearing it too. I know. Like, I hear that. I've been hearing that myth since I went to law school, right? Like I remember during that I graduated in 2008. So sort of like you getting started when the market was down and there's all this talk about rates going down. They, they leveled off and plateaued for a couple of years. And then as soon as the economy recovered, they spiked right up and they've been climbing ever since. And yeah, there's alternative fee arrangements and stuff, but I still see, I see the bills, the bill amounts haven't changed that much. They're like my legal budget has never dropped in the history of my in-house career. It's only, only increased. Right. And you could say, well, that's anything. But the problem is that in my point of view, like, first of all, I don't understand law firm overhead. I don't know why they need the buildings and the towers and the wine cocktails. And I don't know why they need those things. Like I work at one of the richest, most powerful companies on earth. Look at my office. Like, you know, like, I, I mean, I'm barefoot right now. Okay. I'm not wearing $7,500 Gucci shoes. And so like, um, I, I just don't understand that part of the law firm business. I, I, I don't, I don't care that your name's on a building. It doesn't. So. Well, so number one, the world has changed very rapidly over the last 12 months. Um, that's different. Um, the question about uh, about rates in general, uh, I think the answer is because they can charge that and get it, and because yeah, I think that's what it is. I, I don't know that it's anything other than that. I'd also say though, like to me, you know, there's exceptions to this rule, but I'd say I, I'm I'm generally more comfortable paying exorbitantly high rates for someone that I find is like super strategic in an area that's, you know, critical to our company or really complicated or something, then I am paying like a third year associate, like $700 an hour that's adding no value or that's, that's harsh. No value is wrong. But I mean, like really like this idea, I think where law is moving in these law firms is like, there is technology and processes and sort of like um, procedures that law firms are putting in place that like a lot of the junior associate type work that can be more automated or, or whatnot uh, is happening. And then like you're paying a, a higher premium for that like super strategic person that's giving you this advice that you know, is, is, is like why you're seeking the law firm in the first place, right? An interesting point, Greg. Like, I don't know how many of those people there are. Like there are some, and I, and I, I do it, you know, <laughs> like when we're, when we're um, you know, doing a deal, and, and, and doing the financing, right? That's exactly who I want. Um, but uh, it, it, I don't, I don't know that there's like as many people out there that are that, that are, that have that rate, you know, it's, it's, there's way more people that have the rate <laughs> than there yeah, are. That's, that's fair. But I mean, I'm just saying like thinking back on several things that have happened to me. And when I was in the GCC, of like whether there was some some something we're doing that's like super risky that I like really need a great securities lawyer to like tell me like hey what's our exposure here you know how do I need to think about this because like this could have like real downstream issues for us five years from now yeah. or you know we're doing something with the fund on like a fundraising side that might be risky that I like really want a regulatory person to tell me whatever it's so like those types of things like they do come up right it's not you know, it's not like the run of the mill deals, but it's like where you've got some like litigation exposure, or you've got like some move you're making that, you know, you know that there could be some really thorny issues here and you want to think those through, but I hear you. I mean, I think you're right. A hundred percent. Like 
there are way more people that charge those rates than deserve to charge those rates or, you know, how we're going to put that, but yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell us about um, how you started Tech GC and as an entrepreneur and what that's like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, dude, you're right. So like we did not, I never started this with the idea of it being a business. Like this was Kieran and I started this. It was like very much a side project. It was very much like a, um, a community for ourselves. I mean, it was one of these things like as, as cheesy as it sounds, we have this on our website, but it's, you know, sort of by GCs for GCs. So like we were both, I was at First Mark, he was at um, Seed Invest, it's like a FinTech platform. Um, and we both were just like, man, this job's really hard. Like all these things, there's so many questions, like what we were talking about before, there's so many questions that come across your desk every day and you're expected to know this. And like, you know, you're a corporate lawyer, you're a tech lawyer and whatever, you need to know employment law and tax and like international regulation and privacy and all these things. And like, no one knows all that. Um, and then beyond that, like you get random questions like, oh, you're a lawyer. Can like I ask you a question about my estate? Uh, you know, I've had that. I've had people ask about all sorts of stuff. Right. Um, so it's a hard job. And 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 the decisions you make have real consequences. Right. And and you're going to be held accountable for that. So I think the goal here was that, you know, as we're talking about, like outside counsel are valuable for some things, but they're incredibly expensive. And especially in an early stage startup, you can't afford that. So you can't go to outside counsel with everything. And two, like they're not great at, I'd say, kind of a majority of the questions that you get as a GC. They're, you know, but, and I don't mean that in. No, they're not great. No, we're right. We're laughing because that's a bullseye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. You know, you know where I think my bias comes is because, to your point, like most of what I need is not litigation, for example. Like, I understand why people spend money on litigation. If you've got a $100 million lawsuit and you spend $10 million defending against it, you're, you're up a lot of money. Like, if you prevail, I get that. And I totally, in the context of litigation, can understand you're going to want to pay for the best litigator you can because the alternative is you're going to, you know, probably end up, uh, it's going to be more expensive than, than not hiring that person. But, like, for our work, like, you know, especially when I was at Salesforce and at Oracle, like all my work is super corporate, super privacy, super compliance oriented. GCs are not that good at GCs. Uh, outside counsel is not especially great at it because, well, many of them have never been in house and just don't understand how it works. And second of all, a lot of the time when you're asking them these questions, they're hearing them for the first time. And so, you know, what you're basically paying for is like the time and uh, and, and like uh, availability of people to do the work that you overflow on, right? Anyway, sorry. Yeah, in a lot of ways, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I 100% agree. And I, and I also think like, like we've been saying, like a lot of the questions aren't even necessarily legal. Like you want like best practices, like, you know, how are you guys dealing with these issues, right? Like this type of thing has come up, like, right, this is a gray area, like, how are you dealing with it? I don't wanna stick out from the pack. Like we all wanna sort of be within some sort of best practices and sort of like not not be unique on some of these issues like and that's where you just want to talk to your peers right and and then you know i don't know about you guys but a lot of my responsibilities as a gc over the years were like not legal at all it's sort of like we I, you know i've got to like hire a team and they've got to think about like managing you know some level of operations or investor relations or whatever else is on your plate so the whole idea is just like want to get other people in similar situations into this community that we can all share best practices and bounce questions off each other and frankly commiserate and make fun of outside counsel and all that stuff and you know in some ways and 
and whatever. And, and, you know, we kind of did that. We, we just thought about getting a little group together in New York. We did like a, a lunch at a WeWork. Um, I actually remember it was April, 2015. We did this lunch at WeWork and it was just like our network. And, you know, was, I think it was like 30 people there or something. And it seemed to resonate with people. You know, I've always thought like, this isn't a unique idea by any means. Communities exist, legal communities exist, legal communities in New York at the time existed, but it was just right time, right place. And, you know, I think we did it a little bit differently. So people liked it and we did more of them and we expanded to San Francisco and Boston and, you know, kept kind of growing. And I think being the kind of anal lawyers that we were, we really focused on like, if our names are attached to this, we really want to have it be super high quality. So that, that kept becoming the point for us where it was like, this is a ton of work, right? Like organizing events. We did like a conference the first year, like a mini conference at my office space at Firstmark. And like this stuff's a ton of work. And like being a GC is a more than a full-time job, right? So like we kept doing it on the side. And then it was like, we, Kieran and I had this conversation of like, we can either keep doing this, but scale it back because we both don't have the time to do it at the level it's gotten. Or we kind of need to jump in with both feet, one of us or, or hire someone. So, you know, we ended up doing that. We hired someone initially uh, who, who ran it, who was like thinking of going to law school for a while, but he was able to do a lot of the stuff and then ended up going to law school. And then Kieran went full-time and then I came on board full-time. And now actually, as of, as of today, I mean, we're a team, we have now a full-time team of nine and we've got another uh, nine or so part-time people. So we'll be at like 20 or so in total by the end of this year, which is, which is kind of- That's wild, wild, man. That's wild 20, success. In 2018, Greg, so, so everything you just said resonates really deeply with me. Number one, because I really believe in pra like practical content, like number one, but number two, in 2018, <clears throat> as a privacy-focused general counsel, the GDPR was a big deal and- this is how Pedro and I, you know, started talking a lot and gathered, you know, others like Vivek and, and Noga and others like around ourselves to create a group to do exactly, but more focused on kind of like, how do we deal with this animal, this big, this big thing that's happening to our industry, but we've gotten all of the same things out of it. It's just not a formal, it's not formalized and it's not, you know, not nearly the same thing, but the principles are so dead on. Like, you definitely need those people and you definitely need your circle. And one of the things we've laughed about and commented about is that doing this show has, has shown us how awesome those people are again. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, yeah. and, and I, I would guess that, you know, you see that every day, like this community is amazing and your community is amazing. Yeah. I mean, we do like, we're fortunate to see that every day and we, and we hear from a lot of our members and I think you're, you know, you're totally right on that. Like I always found this too, like some people are good at networking and some people, like everyone's got their own little community, right? Whatever it is, who's that person you pick up the phone and call if you've got an issue. But like everyone's community is also somewhat limited, right? Like it's only the people you've been in contact with, right? Like when I was at Firstmark, like there were four or five people that were in the fund seat at other funds that I would call with, with all my issues. Like I'm sure, you know, you guys all, all have that, but it's like your, your network's inherently limited by the scope of whatever it is and like if you need someone else that has not you know seen an issue that someone else has in, in your network like where do you go and that was sort of this idea of like well we can create this pooled network that everyone can tap into and everyone's doing the same thing and we always say like kieran always says this like we're trying to connect people to their closest peers and give you these resources to sort of like connect and and interact and like and to your point like 
really practical content, right? Like we, we partner with law firms. Like this was such a big part of what I was doing with TechGC at the beginning was like having phone calls with law firms about how to present to our group. And like, I would, I would spend like literally hours on the phone with these firms because like they want to come in and present a CLE like they presented to their junior associates. And I'm like, that's just, that is not what people want to hear guys. Like you don't understand. We're not like, we hire you to tell us that thing. Like we need more practical advice. We need to be able to like issue spot. We need to like understand the business ramifications of this and the risks and all that. Like, I don't need you to give me a history of like Delaware case law, right? So like that became this real thing. Like flip this around, focus on what's practical, focus on like giving people some real takeaways and tools that they can use and go implement. And, you know, that's how we're going to like attract this audience to come to these events. And I think that's the same with, you know, just the network in general. It's like getting access to these peers and a set of tools that allows people to share that stuff, that advice and those best practices and have critical. It's critical because the path that we're all on is like this. It's like Excitebike. Like you are twisting, turning, jumping all the time and your law firm can't just, um, a CLE doesn't cut it. And actually what's interesting about, really interesting to me about what you just said was that, you know, having conversations with them about how to talk to tech GC is so interesting because, you know, and we joked earlier about, you know, the way Pedro labeled Gary, you know, a non douchebag, like dirt bag. bag. (laughs) What's interesting about that is that we knew that. And we knew that Gary, for instance, is very practical lawyer and would have, would have those conversations with us. So, so Gat, like, it's, it's funny. It's like, it's in there. You just have to, to give them the framework within which to provide it. And tech GC's done that a lot, I think. Yeah. Cool. Thank Good. you. Yeah. Let yeah. me ask a hard question, a super hard cutting edge question. Do you play video games? <laughs> I used to, man. I don't have time anymore. I used to. What, what did you play? And like when? Oh man, God, this is, this, you're putting me on the spot here. Um, so I'm trying to like the first game that came to mind, mind was Bond, like 007 in, in college. Um, Damn, my roommate that was, was huge game. into that. And I was like huge into that. Um, so spent a lot of years doing that. Um, you know, I have not, I, honestly, I've not owned a gaming system in my post-college adult life. Really? So I, I don't play much anymore. My buddy just down the street just got a new Xbox. So I was over there this weekend. What about on your phone? Do you get stuck? Yeah, I do some games on my phone. I was playing a snowboarding game recently that I downloaded. That was pretty cool, you know, and like on my, I live in New York. So like Subway Commute pre-COVID, I would play things like Candy Crush, those sort of time waste. Candy Crush, that old high definition 4K, super (laughs) graphic uh, (laughs) behemoth. Exactly, exactly. I love my mom loved herself some candy crush man so you and my mom would have been best friends (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure nice I had a friend who admitted to me about how much money he spent on uh clash of clans oh clash of clans yeah so you know one of these like it's like it's like the new age of empires but like uh, (laughs) the other game I loved that I think it was was um starcraft like I was into like the computer like strategy games and you know StarCraft and Warcraft those were great. Mist, did you guys play Mist? Mist, oh I loved Mist. Little Mist, little Mist. It's good for I, people like us that like puzzles, you know. Yeah, I, I actually I, downloaded that on my phone like 
five years ago or something oh, wow. and played it for a little bit and then did not did not really continue with it. it Here's a pretty unpopular opinion about like puzzle games. Tetris sucks. <laughs> I never liked Tetris, man. I just found it tedious and annoying. Uh, <laughs> I know that's not a popular opinion, but uh, I just didn't like it. Hmm. Well, you're entitled, right? Yeah. yeah, this is true. This is true. So one one last question before we go, Greg. When when did you guys see how important it was going to be to cover privacy? And like, I'm wondering if maybe you started to see the rise of the importance of data in you know in your GC jobs and you know assessing companies and doing deals and stuff. But then at Tech GC, the demand for privacy content has got to be pretty high. Yeah, it's the one. I'd say it's one of two or three areas that we can kind of never do enough content on. And every time we do these events, like the, you know, privacy focused things are probably always the highest attended, um, you know, the most engaged uh, type audience. You know, I'd say that, like, I mean, just around the lead up to GDPR was like probably the huge, yeah. you know, the huge push around that. We did like a whole GDPR bootcamp, you know, we did a, a whole separate, I mean, you were, you were involved in that, right? So we did like a real push around that I'd say is when like privacy became like front and center and something that we really focused on. Um, you know, I feel like I kept like you hear about it being important before. And it, it was one of the things too, like as a fund GC and my fund seat, like privacy type stuff is not, I know the right word. It's not that it's not important, but like we're not dealing with tons of data on consumers or customers, right? It's like, it's just not something that like anyone in the fund seat is really that focused on because it's not our business. Uh, so like I, you know, I wasn't super exposed to it and I would say like, it wasn't something that we really focus on in our portfolio companies until GDPR. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely all the rage. <laughs> it's all the rage now. Yeah. yeah. And we continue to see what, I mean, I'm curious what you guys, like, I, what, what's been interesting to me is like, there's the legal side of, we do a lot of stuff, right. We can cover all the different laws, CCPA, all that stuff. Right. But then there's like, I'm seeing like tons, like we are seeing tons of these privacy vendors pop up and, you know, everything, like just all the different sort of like scope of what this privacy software can do and how that's implemented. And it seems like it's, you know, one of these hot areas, like there's so many different startups popping up in that space. And like, how do you view that? Like, how do you differentiate which ones are good, which ones aren't, like what, what your needs are? Oh, I want to hear from from Pedro too, from a big company perspective, but from a small company perspective, I just kind of view like, if you're in the game and you have data, we're now all just regulated businesses, you know, whereas you wouldn't necessarily thought that before, we're highly regulated. So at this, at that point, that means you need compliance software and whatever that is, it almost, it almost doesn't matter quite so much to me what, what you pick is that it, it, as opposed to picking something. And so having, having gone through an exit recently um, and provided some of our like compliance documents that were direct from a system, it was very check the box. It was, oh, well, I'm really glad you even have this, you know? And so I think half the battle is just picking some good tech and doing it and picking, picking companies that have founders that know what they're talking about, like, you know, Ethica and Wirewheel and places that are like founded by people that you know have been in that game for a while and know what they're what they're doing Pedro what from Facebook's perspective do you just do you build everything on your own or do you look at privacy vendors 
I mean, I'm not on that side of the house as much as I used to be, but I think it's a combination, right? Um, uh, you know, Facebook has a lot of in-house stuff and uses a lot of external resources. But I think any major company that doesn't have some blend of that is probably not doing the right thing either. Like, I think I don't think you can build everything because some things just don't make sense to build, um, uh, regardless of size. And then I think uh, uh, some things you do have to build, right? <laughs> I mean, if, and if you have the resources, you should. And it's going to vary from company to company. You know, there were some things that Oracle did in house, uh, and there were some things that Oracle outsourced. And same thing with Salesforce. I think Especially, companies- I, I would just say like like something Salesforce is really good at, like consent management. So why would they outsource that, right? Like that makes no sense. Um, uh, but you know, that's one example. I, I, I guess I don't want to talk about things that the companies weren't good at and did outsource. But like that's the I think that's the math, right? Like. Can we do this natively? Is it a is it a skill set and a strength of the corporation? If it is, let's do it. If it's not, then let's find the you know the best vendor that fits our need and 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 work through that. Yeah, I also I, I so then to me it still comes down to the founding team and who created that compliance software because they're either going to understand the needs of a startup or they're going to understand the needs of a really big company or they're not. Yeah, I think it's just fair. I. I think that's right. I, it's funny to me too. It's just like one of these spaces, I'd say like the two spaces that I see in my my view of first at, at TechGC that like just seems to have an incredible number of companies entering is like privacy software and contract management platforms. Like I've probably heard from two dozen contract management platforms that want to sort of like work with us at TechGC. And like, it's, it's amazing to me. It's just one of these areas, like it's right, like contracts need, like, this, you know, like they're programmable. I don't know why, like this is you know, it's been something that's taken this long, but it's just like, you see this flood and at some point there's gotta be some consolidation and some, not necessarily winner take all, but it's like, there's dozens of these that make it sort of hard for a consumer. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> I don't know. Who can, I don't know who rolls them up or what that, whether that's a good business or not <laughs> to roll them up. You know, or, I don't know. All right, Greg, thanks. Thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for, uh, spending time with us and and really awesome uh to have you and um just congrats on what you you and karen have created because it's it's an awesome community it's really great and and it's really cool to see so thanks thanks way to monetize something that's fun by the way like yeah (laughs) like i just think that's cool and like uh be creative about this legal hustle that we're all in in a way like i just think it's cool man so good for you and uh but can keep doing creative, cool shit. It's much more interesting than like staring at 10Ks or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Thank you both. No, it's kind of right. appreciate it. And thanks yeah. for having me on. Hey, thanks, Pedro, man. I got to say, man, I love your office space here with like Biggie oh. just looking over your shoulder. Thanks, it's, man. He's, he's making sure fantastic. He's making sure we're keeping it real, man. And you so know, awesome. Greg, Greg, every few months he swaps it out for Tupac also. It's true. It's true. Oh, I love yeah. it. I've got Tupac upstairs, and he's. I, it's funny. I was actually thinking this morning it's time for a, a, a switch because, uh, you know, they bring different energies. But yeah, I'm a it's big true. fan. So I appreciate you. And you have a you have an MC Hammer one too, right? I got a. I have a huge Vanilla Ice one in my over yeah. my bed. Yeah, in my bed. <laughs> yeah, that's hot. <laughs> man, it's that's awesome. Look, man. Hey, the ladies love it, man. <laughs>